0: Hello, Blunders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 99 of Real Blend, the last of the double-digit episodes, wow. a podcast that is going to count down the top 10 movies of 2019. Uh, very special episode this week. We're going to give you guys our top 10 lists a special episode that's carrying you through, hopefully, uh, the holiday season, and we didn't want you guys to miss us all too much, so the three of us put together our top ten lists, got them together for you guys, and, and sat down to record this very special uh, 99th episode of Real Blend. Uh, Did you not make do- a
1: joke at the top of the show because you're afraid it won't be relevant in two
0: weeks? Well, that too. Also, we we're doing these really quickly. <laughs> I just didn't have time to <laughs> write a joke, so I just well, just because uh, like
1: I expected like something funny, and it was yeah. just blatantly what the show is going to be. And I was like, oh,
0: okay, well, Do you like, you, like,
1: you, like Sean could have said, at, "Welcome to
2: episode ninety-nine, a podcast." Where Sean O'Connell puts Rise of Skywalker as his number one movie of 2019.
0: Yeah, that would be a shock. That would be breaking yeah. news. Do you know how much pressure I feel about coming up with a good joke for the 100th episode? Like, I'm already. <gasps> oh sweating my it. God, I didn't even think I about know. that. Yeah, I anxiety about that. I know. So I look forward any- to those. Oh, Lots I'm, I'm going to. Oh. I,
1: I, I would help you write one, but last time I did that, I got crap for it, so <laughs>
0: your <trying it> <laughs> own. All right, introductions. Uh, let's get right to the guys. I'm going to start this time with Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., where we will soon be for the 100th episode of Real Blind. Hi, Kevin.
2: Hello, Sean. Yes, I'm very excited. I'm th- this has been such an amazing year for film so i actually don't know your top 10s and i'm like very excited to hear where we all land like this is it's funny because this was probably the hardest year to make a top 10 and um i'm still stressed out about mine so i i have no idea how this is going to go but i'm very excited about it
0: the other top 10 that you will hear uh, on the show is from jake hamilton of fox 32 in chicago hi jakey
1: You know, it's funny. I actually feel like because I actually think this is the best movie, the best year of movies, probably this decade. Um, And because of that, it was actually very easy for me to make my top 10 because there are so many movies that I like just so. I mean, maybe like the last spot was a little to the last last two spots were kind of tough. But there are so many movies that I just absolutely, oh my God, unquestionably, this is on my top 10 list, love. That it was actually pretty easy for me to fill my first eight spots or so
0: well that's what happened to me so I, we had to finalize these lists and get them to gabe um, because he was going to be putting these show notes together uh before he went off to go do some other work and i literally one through nine was done for me yeah and then that 10th spot could have been one of six movies i had a really difficult time just capping the list off and unfortunately i bet you if we went back a couple of years and looked at our top 10s. Oh yeah. You'd be like, uh, I'd probably, they're snapshots finished. of a moment. They're not yes.
1: meant to be definitive. Right. They're reflections of who we are at a certain time in our life.
0: They really are. And so here's how we're going to do this too. We had a lot of discussion about this before the show even started. If one of us names something at 10 uh, or nine or eight and the other guys have it, uh, but it's at a different spot on their list, we're going to use those times to talk about the movie in question but the other people won't reveal where the movie falls on their list. So we right. can keep suspense going about what might be Jake's number three or Kevin's number one or something like that. So uh, we have no such order as far as I know. Uh, Jake, why don't you start us at number 10 and we'll all count down from 10 to 1. This is so exciting. Is really so exciting. <laughs> <And> <laughs> this is so exciting. And as
1: excited cool. as Sean is, just get this going. He's about to take a nosedive because my number <laughs> 10 is Star Wars The Rise
0: of Skywalker. Ugh, I'm glad it landed at 10 and not higher. It's my it. number
1: 10. It just it just makes me so happy yeah. you know I, I have such joy and granted you know it was tough because I did just see it 48 hours ago um, and then had to instantly decide where where or if it fell on my top 10 list but just the joy I felt afterwards the, the walking out of the theater you know it's a cliche we use but if they said hey we're going to rack it back up and start over again I would have gone right back in the Dolby Theater and watched it over again it, it, it just brings me so much joy and so much happiness it, it gives me that sense of being a kid all over again, these, these you know, watching you know these, uh, you know these these characters on VHS on a Saturday morning while my parents are still sleeping, I'm you know eating cereal out of a bowl in front of the TV. Like it gave me that feeling again as a thirty, nearly thirty two year old man. Um, love the movie, love the story, love the ending, love the throwbacks, and uh,
0: very happy with it. Kevin, what's your number ten?
2: My number ten is Dolomite is my name. Um, I love movies about movies. I love uh, a great inspirational story. I love Eddie Murphy. I think Eddie Murphy delivers the best performance of his career since Nutty Professor. I think, uh, I still think he deserved an Oscar for Nutty Professor for playing multiple characters like that at that dinner table scene, but, you know, we know how comedy plays at the Oscars. But Dolomite is genuinely a great film. I think Craig Brewer is a great director. Love Hustle and Flow, love Black Snake Moan. I think Dolomite does a great job of telling a story about the importance of films and the universal language that movies speak how you can talk to people with through films. And I just think Eddie Murphy's performance is incredible, as is Wesley Snipes. It was a fun, hard, R-rated film that really balanced out drama and comedy. And anybody who's a fan of filmmaking, just seeing those old cameras on the set, the way that movie was made, I just really enjoyed it. I love Dolomite. It's my number 10 of the year. It just made me really, really <laughs> happy.
0: Uh, Dolomite contended for uh, for that 10th spot for me. It's one of those ones that was right on the cusp for a while, uh, kind of got bumped out, but I, I could easily see going back and seeing it a year from now, two years from now, mainly because the last scene in Dolomite. I love the last scene when everybody's going into the premiere yes. and Eddie Murphy sees all the fans that are gathered and yep. says, they came to see Dolomite, I'm going to give them Dolomite. Like I've seen the movie play like that. Rudy Ray Moore like loved the attention he got from the fans. And I just thought that was such a I brilliant love scene and beautiful too. way. Yeah. It is, a, it is a great scene.
2: And it's also a movie that just kind of reminds you why you love movies. Like it, yep. it's just like, like I said, that universal language, everybody can sit in the theater and experience a film. Like Jake mentioned earlier in one of our earlier episodes about the baggage we bring to these movies. And you can have shared experiences with people who are in the theater, who are complete strangers. And I think that Dolan might kind of, put a shadow or put a put a light on that aspect of what movies can do, how movies can bring people together. And I think it was just a really well-made film. I loved it.
0: Well, the movie for me at 10 uh that knocked Dolomite out um is Little Women. And Ooh, great again, choice.
2: Great stun, choice.
0: It literally stuns me because yeah. um I think I've said this on the podcast. I don't love Greta Gerwig so much as an actress. Because for this reason, not her as an actress, but the projects that she chooses, she makes a lot of those movies with Noah Baumbach that are very New York centric, right? And (sighs) millennial might be the wrong word. I'm just too old for some of the, some of the topics and humor that they go after in those movies. So a lot of times I watch them and I'm like, these characters are insufferable, right? Like I just, I don't really dial into Mistress America and Francis Ha, I can't get through Frances Ha. Like I don't like those types of movies. So when she started, when she made Lady Bird and immediately a a, a corner of film Twitter that loves those New York centric movies was like, Lady Bird's going to cure cancer. Like it's the greatest movie of all time. And I was like, oh, Greta Gerwig made a coming of age movie. I really don't want to watch this. And then I watched Lady Bird and it was Delightful, it was delightful, and I was like, Oh, good for her, she made a really great movie. And then I mentioned this on the review show that we did recently, where I was like, Your follow up movie is Little Women, like, really? You're doing Little Women, do you have to do like you? You have a strong voice, you should be doing something different, like, not an adaptation of a movie that we've seen a million times. Then I watched Little Women, and it was delightful. The cast was amazing, yeah, her, her, her screenplay was tremendous, her direction is so strong. I was so won over by that movie uh, that when it came time to to pick my 10th film, uh, I went with Greta Gerwig and I went with Little Women whose cast I adore, whose direction I adore. And uh, I am now officially on record saying it right here. I, I, I'm not doubting Greta Gerwig anymore. I'm no, she, Whatever she wants to do next, I'm in, I'm in.
2: And 35 millimeter. I mean, Jake and I were in the theater watching it together and just blown away by the cinematography of that movie. It's such a gorgeous film. And Sean mentioned this in our, in our an earlier episode about the, non, the nonlinear storytelling. It's just so engaging and so immersive. That movie w- would definitely be in my top 15, top 20 if I was making a list that large. I love that movie too. I, I think that's a great, great pick for number 10.
1: All right, Jakey, you're up at number nine. My number nine is Marriage Story. Uh, Just, I mean, raw, real. I mean, probably the movie that I most felt like, and I hope this comes across the right way, that I forgot I was watching a movie where I just felt like I was sort of eavesdropping on a conversation that I shouldn't have been listening to. Like I was in a room that I shouldn't have been in watching these two people argue. Like I felt like I was intruding on someone's real It just felt so raw and so real. And I actually they sent us the script and I went because especially that fight scene in the living room, I thought there had to be some like improv in there because it's just so raw and just so like beat for beat, word for word. That's how it's scripted. And it's a testament to Noah and it's a testament to Adam and Scarlet. I just thought it was beautifully done. It's raw. It's real. Um, I've never been through a divorce, but I've been through a pretty bad breakup and 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 found it incredibly relatable. There were things in there that I've been told before there are things in there that i've said to someone else and uh you know it's 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 one of those things it's it's just so and in fact i know people who don't like it because it's so relatable um kevin you called it a horror movie and i don't think it's that that's that far of a stretch i understand what you mean by that because you are actually married obviously um it's it's terrifying but it's also real and beautiful and 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 um and raw and i loved it so
0: so I revisited Maristore because it's also on my top 10 list and you guys will find out where <clears throat> a little bit later. And it's one of those movies where everything that Jake said, uh, it, it's extremely relatable, for, especially for people who have been in a relationship. But it's also one of those movies that I just have to admire its craft. Like it's the the performances obviously are so great, but it also goes about telling the story in such a way. And it's funny, like we had a poll recently about whose side do you take? Watching the movie a second time shows just how far Noah Bomback goes to make you not, you know, not try to choose a side, right? Right. It it no one's demonized. No yep. one's the villain. Yep. They are both they're just odd just,
2: human beings. Yep.
0: Yes. And yep. but it's also one of those movies that I deeply admire where you're watching it, you're totally engrossed in it, and every time a new character comes in, it's a brilliant character actor, Laura <laughs> yeah. Dern. Alan Alda, and it's Ray not distracting Liotta.
2: in a weird way. No,
1: hundred no, percent correct. And, and, you're
2: absolutely and that's right. something. I don't mean to cut you off, Sean, but one thing I found yeah. interesting is that could easily be distracting. Like when a yep. gigantic star shows up, like a, like someone that you really know really well, but their characters are so good that it it's you're just immersed in it, and you yeah, you you're, of course your mind goes, oh Ray Liotta, uh, for a, like a very split second, but that character. That's such an interesting point because that so easily could have taken us all out of the movie, but it didn't.
0: Well, it brings us to what Sam Mendes said when he was talking about casting those bigger roles in 1917. And he goes, the reason why they're so famous is because they're the best, usually the best at what they do. So if you need an older, compassionate lawyer to play Adam, uh, an actor to play uh, Adam Driver's lawyer, and you can get Alan Alda, get Alan Alda. He's going to make the scene that you're in that much better. And Marriage Story... One of the best scripts I've seen uh, or one of the best scripts I've been able to see realized on screen this year. And this year, con- considering the scripts that are going to be on this list, uh, that that's really saying something. So, I, yeah, I, I loved it.
2: And Marriage Story is also in my top 10 and I'll, and I'll reveal my number later on as well. Um, I just want to echo something that Jake was talking about, about being like, like like a fly on the wall. Essentially, when I watched that film, it's I felt like I was watching a legitimate documentary that someone had shot of someone's marriage going through a divorce. I, I, I yeah. actually, that's how good they are. Like, like, like Adam Driver completely disappears. That performance is, is outstanding as is Laura Dern, as is Scarlett Johansson. And there's something to be said about that script. It is airtight. It's brilliant. Um, and Noah Baumbach makes that film with total confidence. There's not a, there's not a, there's not a, there's not a, uh, a there's not a wasted frame in that movie. It is just relentless Life. And and, and you watch it. I watch it with my wife. You you watch it with your partner. Whoever you watch it with, it's there's no way you're not gonna relate to it somehow. I mean, we uh, any marriage, any relationship has ups and downs, has arguments. This relationship, just is particularly, is. A, it, I love how Laura Dern says it. It's a love story told through divorce. And I think that's yeah. a really fascinating way to kind of position it. So it's very don't good. Don't
0: forget the, the quote going on the DVD cover though. I don't know if you guys have seen it yet. It's credited no. to uh, Michelle O'Connell, uh, wife of Real Blend host. And it oh. just says, uh, quote, it's a lot of talking. And, <laughs> end quote. It's a lot of talking. So Did you hear
2: about, I don't know if you heard about the story the other day, uh, yeah. about yes. Noah Baumbach's favorite <laughs> Guy Ritchie movie. Did you hear about this?
0: <laughs> Hold on. Uh, uh no, I don't know that one. I don't know it. Locke, Noah
2: Bombach, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Oh my god, that is a mouthful. Thank you. Jesus. Thank you very much for that one.
0: Wait, Kevin, <laughs> do you actually know Noah Bomback's <laughs> favorite oh Denzel Washington movie? No. It, it it's a deep poll. It's a it's a real deep poll. Noah Bombach loves this particular Denzel Washington movie. Oh no, marriage, marriage, glory. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's really good. That's really Kevin, really good. What's your good. nine? What's That's your nine? really good, Sean. Uh, oh God, we're
1: only through nine.
2: <laughs> wait, technically speaking, so uh, is it Jake? Jake went with nine, right? Jake. Yes. Well, yes. All right, my number nine is going to be Knives Out. Ooh, um, nice. And again, just a, another another confirmation of how much I love Ryan Johnson as a filmmaker. Even though I don't love Last Jedi. I think *Knives Out* is one, alongside *Marriage Story*, is one of the best screenplays I've seen in a long time. That screenplay is incredible. Um, that movie is so layered, so detailed. It has one of my favorite shots of 2019, um, which is a great shot that Ryan Johnson pulls off when Ana de Armas' character, Ana de Armas' character, learns that she's the one getting the money from the will, and she exits the house while all the whole family's following her. And there's a camera that's obviously sitting still near the car, looking up at the door as she's walking out, that is then picked up or moved in the shot to go towards her. And it's this weird, strange moment where you are actually immersed in her anxiety just based on the camera movement. And I think that's a smart, what a smart idea to think about something like that, because it is jarring. But it's also the moment the movie becomes jarring for Anna de Armas' character. I mean, she's clearly been dealing with the death of Plummer's character throughout the film. But to, like, that world coming crashing down, that family on her back, literally as she leaves the house. And that camera sitting still and stabilized and then becoming chaotic was so just such a smart decision. Um, Daniel Craig's performance in that film is my favorite of his since Layer Cake. I, I always loved Layer Cake. Uh, Matthew Vaughn did a great job with that movie. And I just love when directors are able to get something fun from an actor like that. I mean, we love him as James Bond. But that performance, I feel like he was born to play Blanc. What a character. What a great character. Um, everyone's great in that movie. One of the best ensemble pieces of the year. I cannot believe it didn't get a SAG ensemble nomination. And Jojo Rabbit did. But that's another discussion later on. But that's my number nine. Love Knives Out. Great score by Nathan Johnson. Gorgeously shot. And I still don't know where the 135 millimeter shot is in the movie. And I still want to find out where it is. Um, and if, you missed, if you missed our Ryan Johnson interview, uh, he told a great story about he had to shoot the movie digitally. And on his birthday, they brought a film camera in to let him shoot one shot. It's in the Daniel Craig monologue at the end of the film when he's breaking down how the murder went down. And it's somewhere in there. But because you can shoot digital and color correct and make it look like film, we probably never will never know what it looks like. So.
0: So, All right anyways, my number nine. <clears throat> and this is where the surprises may start. This is where the discussion may start to kick in.: Rise
1: of Skywalker.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, at number nine, I put uncut gems. Ooh. And That's uh, a good one. I, I thought you guys might be a little bit surprised at, at how far down it is.: it, it is it is
1: further of... down than I expected. I will be yeah, honest honestly I don't, I don't mean to like jump ahead, but the next spot is my number eight and uncut gems is my number eight.
0: Oh, good. Let's talk about it right now. Um, But but here's what, when it's at number nine, for me, it's a little bit because on second viewing, um, it didn't hold up for me as much as it did that first time through. That first time through is so riveting. And again, this isn't the fault of the movie. I've mentioned this on past episodes before. How many times is the movie supposed to work? (laughs) You know, is it only supposed to work that first time? Because I was riveted during the first time through. But on a second viewing, when you know what's going to happen um, and you're watching it sort of play out, you can still love Sandler's performance and you can still appreciate how the Safdies put it together. But that roller coaster ride feeling is is a little bit gone from it. And as I watched other things on my list, I'd moved them up and I moved Uncut Gems down. It's not going to take anything away from what the Safdies accomplished. I think between Good Time and this, they have announced themselves as uh filmmakers, obviously, to pay attention to, but ones that I would even peg on a career track that if they continue to tell stories like this, they're gonna be in Scorsese realm pretty soon uh because they have just perfected that underbelly type story where really uncomfortable characters live. and somebody mentioned what's a what's a woman's name who plays his girlfriend Julia fox yes. Julia Fox uh, there was a tweet uh, this is good that was so perfect. Yeah, yeah. Kevin, you probably saw it. Yeah. If Natalie Portman or Jennifer Lawrence was in that role, we'd be falling over ourselves to give give her an Oscar. That performance is so good. Um, and it's it's one of many amazing performances. And they are just, they are uncomfortable characters. You don't love them. You know, the, you almost don't like to spend as much time with them as you have to. Uh, but that's the type of story that they told. and And I loved it. And But it's, it's uh, it feels like a slight that I'm putting it at nine. It's At least it's on my top 10. Uh, no, it's sort of I,
1: like, when you say it, it's kind of like riding a roller coaster. Like the first time you ride a co- roller coaster, yeah. you don't know, really know where the drops are or how it's going to affect you one or the other. You, you get off and you get back in line. It's still really fun to ride yeah. it again, but you kind of know where the, and it just, it, you can't replicate that X factor. And and Uncut Gems is one of those movies. And once again, like it's on all of our top 10 list. So we're, none of us are trying to slide it. Um, it's my number eight, it, you, it, but you just can't. You can't replicate that X factor again. You just can't, and it's yeah. not their fault. Um, and it, it's a testament to them that there is even an X factor that I wish could be replicated. Yeah. Um, but for all the reasons you said, it's my number eight. And I, so I respectfully disagree
2: with the idea that it doesn't hold up. Um, uh, Uncut Gems is not, way, not even way.
1: necessarily that it doesn't hold up. It's just the that that feeling, that anxiety, that like that that wish, like that stomach churning of what the hell is going to happen. I. I I know what's going to happen,
2: so mm-hmm. I would I would argue, and I've watched it twice. The second viewing of the movie that I had was just as intense as the first viewing for me. And Kevin, um, this is on
1: your top ten list too, right? So this it's is your- way higher up, but we, and I'll, I'll okay. reveal the number
2: later on. But I, since we're going to discuss the film now uh, in full, yeah. it is it's truly a remarkable cinematic achievement from two very young filmmakers who are making movies that I feel like. I feel like these guys were from a different generation. These guys are from like sports as yeah. generation. Um, you know, one thing I love about Sean's list so far is his first two movies were shot on 35 millimeter film and the Safties, yeah. which Jake told us took a pay cut just to shoot 35. These are guys who genuinely care about immersion. They care about the filmmaking experience. They care about putting you in a world and not letting you go, taking you by the neck and not letting you go. And I think the Safties are, the way they utilize score and cinematography as leading characters, it truly blows my mind. That score is just as much of a character as Sandler's performance. Sandler, ever since Punch Drunk Love, I mean, I've always loved his comedies and Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison. Punch Drunk Love and PTA brought out a very good dramatic side of of Sandler. And then seeing what he did here I didn't see Adam Sandler on that screen and Julia Fox, everybody in this film is just on firing on all cylinders. Adina Menzel, Kevin Garnett is incredible in the movie. He's so good yeah. as himself. Yeah. Um, Stanfield. <laughs> I mean, it is it's a really well done film. Garnett could have been awkward. Garnett could have been like weirdly acting like himself, but he was
0: perfect.
2: Yeah, like, and, he was I, right. and like The Safety Brothers just took a lot of time. They took 10 years to make this film. They made good time in between, which kind of really solidified them to me as great filmmakers. And same thing with that movie. It's the utilization of score and film and just the way they immerse you. These guys are all about full-blown immersion. And to me, that's what makes Uncut Gems so special. I was absolutely floored by uncut gems. And on my second viewing, I was just as floored. And I love, I love that film. I absolutely love that movie. It's way higher up on my list, but I'll reveal it later.
0: Well, Kevin, you get to go at eight because Jake has revealed that gems was his eight. So Kevin's up.
2: So this will be easy. So my number eight's marriage story, which we already discussed. Love the film.
0: All right. My eight uh, is a movie that I've been fighting uh, all year to say it's staying here. It's staying here. I'm not taking it out. Uh, I revisited it to make sure that it's still held up the way that I wanted it to. So at eight, I have Rocket Man. Rocket Man um, is just a purely joyous experience. Um, It made me realize, like, I wouldn't have thought going into it that I was a huge fan of Elton John songs. But it was one of those situations where... The arrangements of the songs um, and the way that they're used in the film made me realize that I, I actually love a lot of his songs a lot more than I thought I did. Um, I think Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. The song itself is not that good. But the way that it's used in that movie, it, it, it's a song and dance. It's got a musical yeah. number. There to are it.
1: some versions of, of his songs that I prefer the Rocket Man version than oh, the actual version. A fair I feel number that, of them. I feel that way about
2: Alien Ant Forms Smooth Criminal.
0: That's
2: funny. I, well, I'm, I'm being serious. I'm not, not going to yeah, joke. Yeah. I
0: actually prefer that version. Oh, but Smooth Criminals, really yeah, good yeah, by Michael that's, Jackson. That's
1: my favorite Michael Jackson song.
0: Uh, yeah. Your song, though, the way that he yeah. does your song at the piano. And again, we've talked about this this movie a lot uh, over the years. We got to go to the junket and we got to sit down with Dexter. Um, the fact that Taron does his own singing uh, elevates this. Again, we make a lot of comparisons to to the, a direct movie right after it, and this one, unfortunately, I think, it gets compared to Bohemian Rhapsody a lot. When it shouldn't, by any stretch, because it's only just the fact that they're both about artists from the 70s.
2: And directed um, by the same person.
0: Well, and directed by the same person, correct. And then Bohemian got a lot of attention at the Oscars, and, and I do think that— um, Taryn might be getting, but again, it's uh, maybe not this year. Maybe best actor is just too stacked, but I'm glad he's getting some recognition. If he early doesn't on.
1: get it, he probably would have been the sixth or seventh person.
0: He is so good Agreed. as Elton John in this movie. Um, maybe, he'll, also, maybe he'll
2: Edgerton it out. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll get in, you know, it's possible.
0: <laughs> I really just loved the approach to, it's not a traditional musician biopic, um, it tells Elton John's stories, but it, it embraces the fantastical. Uh, the scene at the troubadour when he gets everybody up for Crocodile Rock. Amazing. Is when, he, when he's floating. Yes. It's That's magic. a great scene. There's so many scenes that are magic. When he transitions from the Dodger Stadium uh, concert to the pool where he overdoses on drugs. I mean, it's just it's such a wonderful way to tell a, u- a unique and eclectic story. And I knew in the back of my mind that I wanted to fight. And keep it on my list. And then when I revisit it, it climbed up a little bit, climbed up a little bit. And so it is at number eight for me, Rocket Man. That brings us to seven and Jake's pick.
1: My number seven is uh, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Ooh. Uh, uh, a movie that I resent as being just referred to as a Mr. Rogers movie because it is so much more than that. In fact, it's even barely that. Uh, it is a movie about broken people and about the fact that it is okay to be a broken person. There's nothing wrong with being a broken person. Um, in this particular instance, uh, this particular broken person played by Matthew Reese just needed someone like Mr. Rogers to tell him that, that it's, it's OK to be broken and it's OK to ask for help. And it's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, structured as a episode of, uh, of Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, which is, I think, a brilliant way to structure this story using mr rogers as a secondary character instead of making it about him i think it's perfect matthew reese is wonderful as the lead chris cooper is incredible as his father and then of course naturally you know i'm I'm in love with tom hanks as in this particular role i think it's one of his best performances um this one this one hit me in the feels man this one hit me this one this one really got me in the feels and uh i i I really wanted to keep it on my top 10 list it was much higher until i saw some other movies on this year um but I, i i love it so
0: Oh, you loved it after Toronto. I remember yeah. seeing you after that and yeah. That, that was, yeah. was high up on the list for you. Kev, it's did a it make yours? Movie.
2: It did not make my top 10, but I, I but I do, I do. just loved the structure of it, to be honest. I was very pleasantly surprised that it was, a, you know, essentially, like we said, like a two-hour episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And I th- i just thought it was a clever way to tell a story. And I thought, I think Matthew Reese's performance in that movie is one of the best performances I've seen this year by an actor. And I'm unfortunately, I, I wish he was... I wish there was a conversation being had about his performance, but I understand we're so stacked. Um, but I do recommend seeing it. It's it, it's I mean Chris Cooper is so devastating in that movie. Um, I just think that it, it's so well done. I loved it. I really did.
0: Kev, number 7 for you.
2: My number 7 is The Irishman. Uh, it's Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Um, yeah, it's actually going to be <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's 7. I uh, listen, I, I I love The Irishman. I love it enough to put it in my top 10. Uh, I rewatched bits of it recently on Netflix uh, after seeing it in theaters. I still have some of, some of the things I, that I, I can't look past. Um, some of the CG de-aging is just, it just looks video game-ish, cartoonish. Um, that being said, why it's in my top 10. Uh, I, I love the Martin Scorsese that we are getting now. Um, I love Hugo as a love letter to filmmaking and I love this film because I feel like it's, it's the film he could only tell at this age based on what he had already done with his previous body of work. Um, what through what blew my mind about Irishman was the third act. Um, I do think the film structurally has some issues in the first two acts where some of the pacing feels off. That being said, once the third act hits you realize how important every single second of that movie was leading up to it. So I found myself conflicted because at first I'm like, this seems a little bit long. But then as the film draws to a close and they bring back this epic shot of a door being left open, just the whole thing came crashing down in my mind emotionally and I was all in. And I was just like, that is a masterstroke moment right there. Like that, That moment is so well executed and well earned. Uh, over that time, I think De Niro delivers one of the best performances, if not the best performance of his career. Um, and I say that because it's so internal and it's so all in his eyes. Uh, Pacino, Pesci, everyone is phenomenal in this film. Uh, the filmmaking on the film uh, is is truly amazing. The number of cameras they use, the, the way they had to light it on set, the way the actors had to portray different ages over 51 years. Um, I don't think it's a perfect movie, but I do think it is Honestly, a film that I'm just happy exists. I'm happy that Scorsese got to make a movie that looked at what happens to gangsters once they reach an older age and the depressing nature of, you know, you look at something like Goodfellas, which, you know, these, these films were they, were, they were movies that really kind of showed the good times of these gangsters' lives and kind of like the money they were making. And yeah, there were downfalls, of course, but this really hit me in the feels because it made me think about while well, I'm not a gangster, I understood and related to what they were going through. I, you, know, I, you know, De Niro's character is a murderer, right? I, I, and, and I'm not a murderer, but I still find myself relating to what he was going through on an emotional level. What deeply impacted me about The Irishman, uh, which is why the story by Anna Pacquin really bothered me, uh, was the performance, uh, was the dialogue, was the conversation internally that De Niro's character had with his daughter, and to me, the, while they didn't say anything or say much, that was the heart of the movie. She was judging him in every aspect of his life. And it got to him. And that's why that movie is so devastating. That's why it's my I love that movie. It's number seven. That's where Irishman is.
0: Part of the reason why I think Irishman's going to fall on all of our lists. Jake, it's on yours too. Yep, it's on mine. Um, is that it speaks to us in completely different ways. Kevin just voiced all the reasons why the movie connects with him. Uh, part of the reason why it connects with me is because there's a criticism level that Scorsese, over the years, of that he glorifies the mob. Uh, that he... And Scarface gets this a lot, too. You know, that, that people latch onto these personalities and idolize them, and they want to be more like them, and they, uh, they portray that sense of... L- loyalty almost to a fault. You know, it's almost like it's that machismo and the bravado that comes with loyalty. Um, and, and people who embrace that type of mentality and that lifestyle, never think about the consequence. And Scorsese gets a lot of heat of like, uh, you show this one side of the mob and you never show, but I think he does show the repercussions, but in, in, in uh, the Irishman, he really walks you through. Like, this is the toll it takes on these guys. It's not a quick bullet in the head, Uh, which it is for a lot of people who cross these guys. It's the emotional weight and the guilt. And again, Scorsese is a Catholic and a lot of his best stories are filtered through his Catholicism, obviously none more than Irishman. And the the one, two punch of silence in the Irishman are back to back side by side. Just the work of a master craftsman, uh, you know, operating at the top of his game at a late stage in his career, which blows me away. If you step back from Irishman, he's juggling three, different stories, three frame stories, old De Niro in the nursing home, De Niro and Pesci going to Michigan and the flashback to them at a young age. And all three of them stick their landings, which is for anyone listening to this podcast, impossible. Like you can't do that. But this screenplay is so brilliant that it actually pulls it off Uh, in, in a way that it flows, that all three of them feed into the others that feed into the others so that you begin with, uh, De Niro in the uh nursing home, and you end with him at the nursing home. But it wasn't even that. On a rewatch, on the second time watching on the big screen, it was those scenes in the prison where the old guys are playing bocce ball, and they're just and they're yeah. getting wheeled around the prison. And I Oof. was like, God, these guys were at the top. For yeah. me, it and was now, the, the dipping of
1: them. the bread and the wine. Pesci, like oh, he's his hand is God. shaking. He can't. He can't even eat the bread anymore because he's got the teeth.
0: I mean, life just life just. Takes it all away from you. It and doesn't matter who you are. Yeah, I mean, That's it's great. Score but, but is like just, the performances. It's nasty. Yeah, the performances are some of the best I saw in any film this year. Uh, I know the Pesci's getting a lot of attention. I know De Niro's getting a lot of attention. To me, the best performance I saw this year was Pacino as Hoffa. I do. Um, I think
1: Pacino is the best one in that movie. The, so one, good. the way
0: he angrily chews steak <laughs> and stares down his rivals at De Niro's yeah. dinner. I mean, there's so many brilliant moments in that movie. It, it's it is it the is. quintessential. Gangster movie from the the man who has made the best gangster movies I've ever seen in my lifetime Uh, Irishman will rank much higher for me, but we're talking about it right now Uh, Jake Last thoughts on
1: yeah, also. I mean everything you guys said it's also much higher in my top 10 It's it's a it's a breakup Letter to gangster movies from a guy that spent a lifetime writing love letters to gangster movies um Mm. That's wow. Uh, nice. I, I uh, you know, and it's also the first time, you know, we're well, not the first time, but really a, a quintessential, like what's this all about? Like the, to me, the pinnacle moment being the fact that his nurse didn't even know who Hoffa was. So yeah. he's sitting there alone and he's alone because of what he did for this man and to this man. And then the person who's taking care of him I doesn't even no know who this man is. is. Yeah. <laughs> so and great. that sad irony is just yeah. both brilliant and heartbreaking at the same time. Um. So yeah, much higher in my top ten. But um, you guys said it perfectly. Um, and
2: film. I want to mention one thing about the score before we move on to the, uh, number six. Uh, the score in that film it builds like a cancer. Um, and as you watch the movie and as the film and as the characters progress and start to become older and become more um, just un, they're just not happy with their lives. That that score is just like. It's just like dirty and grimy. It's like I've, there's a, the score, that's one of the first times I've watched a movie where the score actually added in my mind to the atmosphere of the, it made the movie feel gross to me. Um, And as they were going down that darker path in the end of their lives, it almost, it almost resonated like as it was like the inside of their bodies just dying. That's how the score felt to me. Um, I thought that was really well done.
0: All right. I still got to give seven for me, um, a movie that might land on someone else's top 10 list. I went with 1917. Uh, 1917 moved up for me after I watched it a second time. The first time I watched it all the way through, I was paying attention uh, to all the technical aspects of it. Uh, The one shot, obviously, as much as Sam Mendes begs us not to look for the stitches. That's what we do. So I sat there and tried to pay attention to how did you do this? Uh, The second time through, I was able to get fully immersed in the story of the soldiers. Now, maybe you don't have to watch it two times, you know, to get that. But the first time through the Deacon cinematography, the direction, all of that overwhelmed me. The second time through, it was a story of those men. And I was uh, extremely captivated by how well he structured the story of these two guys who get tapped one day of just go meet your supervisors and get handed this assignment and the sheer dedication they have to the mission. Uh, And I think a lot of that um, commitment is missing nowadays. And I found that to be so heroic. In an age where we celebrate superheroes on the regular, you know, here's two regular guys who just wanted to do the right thing to save the lives of hundreds of men who were going to be marching into a, a you know a, a suicide mission essentially because they had bad information? It's that simple. You know, it's just if we don't get this message to the right people, hundreds of people are going to die. And sometimes that the, the stakes that alone is enough to power you through. What I really admire about Mendez is that all the obstacles that he put in those guys' ways are surmountable. We talked about this in the conversation with him when we had him for the interview. Nothing was so out of the ordinary that it took me out of it to the point where just him crossing a river on a bridge while he's getting shot at was like the most riveting intense because I was just like, where's he going to (laughs) go? He's got no place to go. He's hanging out there. Uh, The performances are fantastic. I love all the little all-star ensemble guys who show up in the cameos. And yes, Roger Deakins is an absolute god. And yep. the the moment after the blackout um, is is the best example to me of a cinematographer unleashing every tool in his box. Like the, the set design, everything's on fire. And Deacons is just like, I'm going into it and you're coming with me. And here we go. And I'm blown away by the technical aspects of 1917. But it's not just that it's the story and the performances. And so it landed at seven on my list.
1: Uh, it's also on my top ten list. Um, and, and every way that you, that you said, you know, there, there's, you know, there's this idea of war movies really kind of making you sort of feel like what a war is. And obviously, you know, none of us have ever served, so none of us will ever really know what that experience is like. Um, the closest that I, yeah, thank God. The closest I, um, (laughs) can, uh, you know, equate that to is the opening of Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. And this would probably be the second time that I sort of like almost felt like God, like this is. This is what it was like. And also, too, World War I was such a different war than, than World War II. Uh, World War I was such a, a paralyzed war, like we talked about in the interview, and that World War II was expansive, and they were moving all over the place. And Saving and Private Ryan, you know, they're on this huge, long odyssey. 1917, they don't have to go that far, but right. it's just so hard to get there. So it's a different kind of immersion and sensation than uh, Saving Private Ryan was. But I cared about these characters, I cared about them so much so that I kind of forgot about Roger Deakin's technical achievement about 20 minutes in, which I think Sam Mendes would, would appreciate. I then rewatched it to greater appreciate the technical achievement. Um, and I just thought everything about it is uh, astronomical. And I, rev- I will reveal where it is on my top 10 list uh, a little bit later in the show.
2: And I, I don't have 1917 in my top 10. Um, I because admire- you hate it. No, yeah, I admire the film. Uh, I like a lot of I, I like a lot of it. I think Roger Deakins again, one of the greatest cinematographers of all time. We all know how amazing he is. I think the movie looks incredible. It's gorgeous. Uh, I want to make a statement right now, and I want it on the record. Um, Nineteen Seventeen will win Best Picture at the Oscars this year. It's a perfect. Wow. It's, it, 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 it is the type of movie that the Academy will yeah. latch onto. It is the You're type of wrong. movie. Uh, I am one. I would almost say it's one hundred percent locked. That nineteen seventeen wins best picture, the, and I and I'm not saying it should. I'm saying no. I don't. I don't
0: will. disagree with you. It, yeah, it's 100% it really does feel like no question. It feels like the Academy pick. Hundred percent. But in this year, there's so many good movies. I know there's so many good movies. Oh man! All right, it might happen. All right, Jake, you're up to number six.
1: My number six is uh, depending on whether or not you listen to the pronunciation of the director or the characters in the movie. Yeah. Midsomar or Midsummer? Because the characters yeah. in the movie say Midsummer, but Ari Aster came on our show and said Midsomar. Um just he did uh, so <laughs> weird and horrifying and beautiful. It's a better version of the Wicker Man. The characters I thought were fantastic. I was un- I was just so and I I'm even getting, like getting cringy just talking about it. I was from that opening sequence, I was so unsettled. From Florence Pugh, from like the boyfriend picking up the phone to kind of be like, oh God, what does she want? And hearing her blood-curdling scream, yeah, I was just locked into this movie. Every aspect of it is horrifying. Um, There's not a false note in the entire, it's not like a horror movie where you go, why would that person make that decision? I understand every character's motivation and justification. It's also a weirdly kind of messed up, funny breakup movie. Um, First for him and then for her. Um, if you're going through a rough patch in a relationship, especially if you're with one that's on the um, the receiving end of, a, of maybe a partner that's not treating you the way you deserve to be treated, Midsummer's the movie for you, man. Um, <laughs> I, I like it. I, I was sort of I respected Hereditary more than I liked it, but I both respect
0: and love Midsummer. Florence Pugh has had an incredible year. I She's- actually
1: think she deserves Best Actress nomination for that more so than she does for uh, a supporting actress for Little Women.
0: Interesting. Kevin, did it make your list?
1: No, I didn't. And I, I, listen, I, I
2: respect and admire Ari Aster. I just felt numb. That movie made me numb. I, I just <laughs> didn't. I, I, I think it was incredibly um, ambitious and extremely interesting. But at the end of the day, when the movie ended, I didn't feel anything. I didn't care about the characters. I just found myself yeah. more in shock and disgust than actually emotionally. Same thing with Hereditary. That's how I felt after, I, I, I just, I don't know if his movies emotionally just don't connect with me at the moment.
0: What's a, what's a six for you then, brother?
2: My number six right now, oh shoot, I need to go back to the text I sent Gabe. All right, my number six is Joker.
0: Um. Hey, my number six is Joker.
2: Oh, that's perfect. Well then, let's, let's, let's talk about that together. We're just our best friends forever. Well, and just hang yeah, out let's on. talk we about that forever.
0: together. <laughs>
2: did we just become best friends? We did. brothers. All right, so, all right
1: Joker. My friends, my <laughs> Joker's my number six, my <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, I, um wait jake you have this on your list obviously this is yeah it's on my top on my 10 list, list too all right cool yeah um joker uh, uh i mean to me what's funny about joker by the way is as much as people loved it do you guys know or remember the rotten tomatoes score of that film 70? i imagine it's in the 70s 69 percent.
0: hey nice and everyone and everyone's <laughs>
2: giving crazy uh <laughs> Thought processes to rise of Skywalker being so low, Joker was is almost practically down where Skywalker is, and it's held, which is of insane to me.
0: We've discussed this on the podcast too of like the movie didn't change, but it went from winning in Venice and being right. lauded critically to now all of a sudden it's a piece of shit, which is ridiculous.
2: Yeah, and, the, and I think Joker is an astounding achievement. Um, it's also one of the best shot films of the year. I mean, that the cinematography in that movie. The look of that movie, the scope of that film, one of the things I think Todd Phillips did really genius and really well in that film is he made a movie that was intimate, yet at the same time epic on on a a scale of just the city, right? I mean, like, we're, we're in these moments with Joker and Arthur Fleck, but then he reminds you every once in a while that you're in this gigantic Gotham City, and he gives you that grimy, nasty look of the city, and... I just found the juxtaposition between that to be an incredible thing because if you can go intimate to epic and epic back to intimate, I just think it's a fascinating way as a filmmaker to pull it off. Hilder's score is genius. One of the best scores of the year. Um, it complements Arthur's character, complements Joaquin's performance. It's an unpredictable film. Uh, it, it, it went places that I did not expect. Uh, I was truly felt disgusting after it ended in a dur- in, in, but in a weird way, I, I just enjoyed it. But I wanted to take a shower after it was over because it it just does not follow normal studio picture guidelines. This movie felt like it was an independent film made with a larger budget released by a larger studio. Um, And it was just risky. It felt new. It was fresh. Uh, Performance-wise, I just think De Niro was incredible. Everybody in this movie lands. Everybody is phenomenal. Uh, And I just think Todd Phillips really
1: does a great job. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Jakey? Um. Yeah, 100%. It's You know, what's interesting is that it's a great character study of a man, and that itself makes it for, for a pretty fascinating movie. That man just so happens to end up becoming the Joker, which makes it all the more interesting. But take that, and maybe this is the sign of a great movie that exists within a comic book universe. If you take out the comic book element, is it still a great movie? And Joker absolutely is in the same way that if you take out Batman... Um, out of the Dark night, you, you got heat, basically, right? I mean, it's still um, and 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 Joaquin Phoenix's performance is um, probably, honestly, my favorite performance of this year. Um, I think it's it, it's it's so cheap to say, oh well, he just does the most acting. That's not true. That's just like saying, okay, well, like Pacino does the most acting. In the Irishman doesn't mean that he's bad. He just does just 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 because you can see the acting doesn't make it bad. Like I I, I love what he does. Um, I thought it was heartbreaking. Until it's not. Um, you know, the big complaint uh, being whether or not we sympathize with this guy. For a while, I do. And then he becomes a villain. And right. then it's a movie about a villain. Like, all, all villains have to come from somewhere. You know, they're not born evil. At some point, they became a villain. And we just see the movie about the time that this guy did. Just because there was a moment in which he wasn't, doesn't mean he isn't anymore, and it doesn't mean we're not right. allowed to sympathize with him for one second, and then not sympathize with him for another. And all of that gray area, all those complications, all of those um, like sort of uh, moral struggles, make this a very um, fascinating character study for me—a character study that just so happens to involve uh, one of the greatest villains of all time. It's
2: the same so, reason why we I kill for kill—we we care for Killmonger. I mean, like the, it's a layered villain, and that's why the movie's great because you because you care, but then you don't once they turn. You know what I mean? It's crazy.
0: Also, like, everybody moves mountains with Joker uh, in a, in the discourse that follows, quote-unquote discourse, uh, to separate it from being a comic book movie. Well, it's so much more than – but but the reason why I love it is because even as a comic book movie, it's an amazing origin story. Um, and for part of the reasons that Kevin celebrates, it shows me – it shows Gotham in a way that I've never seen on screen. Yeah. Like, like it literally Dirty. feels like a city that I recognize. And it's really dirty and it's really sleazy. And you can understand why the weight of that city would break this guy's psyche. Like there's just things that happen to like the Joker is such a fascinating character that we just accept that he's a lunatic. uh, And we don't think about why he's a lunatic, like what actually pushed him that far. So I loved the study of figuring out what pushed this guy to that limit. When Joaquin is finally fully Joker, he's brilliant. If Leonardo DiCaprio was not in a movie this year called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Joaquin would give the performance of the year. Uh, he's fantastic. But I also love just taking that one next step forward of this Gotham city is really horrifying and scary. And this guy in the name the Joker, who's risen to a position of power, is really horrifying and scary. And that city needs Batman. And I love that as an origin story. You don't see him but you just know that he's going to have to show up sooner because this city really needs him. Yeah. And that's why Joker landed at six for me. Uh, so it's six for Kevin. It's six for me. We're at five for Jake.
1: Uh, my number five was a movie that I'm unfortunately feeling has just kind of gotten forgotten and lost in the shuffle. And it's Ad Astra. Uh, oh, uh, just a interesting. Beautiful, beautiful um, testament uh, uh, to a relationship between a father and son, the lengths that we will go. To be the kind of man we think our father wants us to be, the the lengths that we will go uh to to have our father's approval. Um it is both a pretty spectacular space adventure, big budget sci-fi, big screen spectacle, while also being this very small internal uh character study of a guy who just wants his dad to give him a hug um he literally crosses galaxies to to just to see and and the worst part is his dad is Tommy Lee Jones <laughs> that is the who worst. I'm not entirely sure has ever hugged anyone um <laughs> not convincingly I thought, I thought Brad I mean the fact that like I I would I would what's crazy is I would call this one of Brad Pitt's best performances and it's not even his best performance of the year which is <laughs> yeah, astounding yep. um I loved it I thought it, the cinematography was gorgeous the score was gorgeous and I'm really bummed that it's kind of gotten forgotten about in the, in the hustle and bustle of the year. And okay, another movie shot on 35
2: millimeter, by the way, um, I, I'm going to get my number five, but I want to say something. I was just looking at both of you while we were speaking. I, I I just love what we do, man. This is like so crazy to me. Like we're just like, we're, we're, we're adults talking on <laughs> Skype and just geeking out about movies. And yes. it, it, it's, a. Am- I just want to say that I love doing the show. All right. Number five. Uh, I went with end game. Uh, and again, this is a favorite list, right? Uh, what I what I think, do I think Irishman's a better film than Endgame from a filmmaking standpoint? Sure. Um, Endgame is number five on my list because it was honestly one of the greatest movie-going experiences I've ever had in my life. And yes, I went to the premiere. That was one of them. But I also saw it at home a bunch of times. And being in a theater when that film came out was One of the greatest moments I've had as a cinema fan in my life, Um, seeing 11 years of storytelling all come to a close in a in a really well-designed story that paid off with those homages back to the original films in a way where when they time hopped back to like New York and Asgard. Those scenes were just so gratifying because it was it was a necessary element of the story that I did think was important, but it was also just a really good reminder of what we had been going through emotionally with these characters all this time. Uh, there, I mean, that moment when Chris Evans says "Avengers Assemble" as he wields Thor's hammer is just something that I, and, Sean, and Sean Sean is better to uh, 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 emotionally equate this to the audience than I am because he's more of a Marvel fan than me, but. That that scene is just, there's something so special about that scene that it even exists, that endgame even works. I mean, you think about an 11-year time frame and what they built in those 10 years leading up and then this film sticking the landing, I just don't understand how it's possible. Um, you know, we give the Russo brothers credit, but Feige really is kind of that mastermind, that puppeteer behind the scenes making it all happen. And Silvestri's score I mean, that Avengers theme we've had for a few years now, but when that thing hits with the ending, it's like, it's, and just Iron Man's line, um, every aspect of every character, we, we, we got endings for it. I do think it's more of a Cap film at the end of the day because the Russos love Cap. Um, it is just a really incredible cinematic achievement that I can't believe exists. And that's why it's my number five.
0: Well, the hammer thing is even a payoff to the joke that's laid in Age of Ultron. And Ultron, when you can't lift lift it, it. yeah. I I gotta give credit to Marcus and McFeely. Like, as as much as the Russos are amazing, and as much as Feige's the architect of it, those guys just understand the fabric of all those characters. And again, uh, Kevin said it, it's a movie that just shouldn't exist. There's there's no way possible that that movie should exist. But I've gone back and watched it. So Endgame is my favorite movie of all time. It's my favorite movie of all time. Um, it's not my number one this year and I'll explain that dichotomy when we get to that point, but it's the movie that like when Jake says he can put rise of Skywalker or will put it on a loop, I'll put end game on maybe once a week and just, just have it on the background. Cause it just makes me feel good. Um, but I've had chances to really analyze it and figure out what, what thrills me about it is that infinity war was the one that, that serviced everybody and set up the big bad. It's a Thanos movie. Endgame was a conclusion to the saga that paid tribute to the original Avengers. And all of those guys got their moment. Tony got to go back in time and interact with his father and have that beautiful conversation.
2: Oh, that scene is amazing.
0: Oh, I love that scene. Steve gets to go back to Peggy. Uh, Natasha sacrifices herself. The movie starts with Hawkeye losing his family and he goes through his Ronin stage Uh, Bruce Banner becomes smart Hulk. He gets a little short change, but he does get to do the infinity snap that brings everybody back. And of course, Tony's um, I am Iron Man, the portal scene. I could pull up on YouTube right now and watch it. And I'll start crying. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Yeah. The on your left call on your left, the on your left callback is so genius. Yeah. The hammer callback is genius. Like, I said this to you guys when I was raving about how much I loved the movie. There's a shot in the movie where Captain America yells out, Hey, Queens. And he yeah. throws Thor's hammer and Spider-Man snags it <laughs> while he's carrying the Infinity Gauntlet. Yeah. None of these things should happen on screen <laughs> ever. But in context, they happen. And there's Captain Marvel saying, Hey, Peter Parker, like th- that delivery, all those little moments... Give me goosebumps as I talk about them. I can't believe it exists. I'm so happy I live in a time where it does exist. It will be much higher on my list, but it's time to talk about Endgame right now. It's it's a masterpiece. Does
1: no one want to ask me if it's
0: on my top ten? We, <laughs> we know we it's already, not. We already, we already know, Jake.
2: Sean, I do have a question for you. Ultimately, and and then we'll move on yeah. to our number four, I guess. Or Sean, I gotta five. give a five. I gotta in give a five. Yes. Um. Yep. At the end of the day, as much as you love Endgame. I still argue Infinity War is a better film. What are your thoughts on that?
0: I, I mean, they they both. Well, and Infinity War is my number one the year it came out. So right. it's not like I'm going to say that it's bad by any right. stretch. Um, it's funny. You can't have one without the other. Sure. and And I'll admit that the first half of Endgame, when you go back to revisit it, You know, it takes a while to get going. Sure. It really does. And there's character moments scattered throughout it that I still love that keep me invested in it. But it's that second half that's just, that's off the charts. So you can make an argument that Infinity War might be a better movie overall. But the payoff in Endgame is just, it's spectacular. Uh, They both, I'd like to envision them in a Kill Bill kind of way. That together they're one movie. Together, they would be one movie. All right, I'll go five, and then we're going to... Start. The good news is, as we get into our top fives, I assume we're going to be repeating a lot repeating, of the same movies. yeah. Yeah, uh, five for me is Waves by Trey Edward Schultz. Waves uh, decimated me. I've been raving about it on the show. I hope I've driven some people to go check it out. That, that movie one's because me, of you. That movie had me wrapped around its finger. Um, it's such a relatable story Uh, of a teenager, you know, trying to get by the issues that he goes through. uh, He's a wrestler. He's got a shoulder issue. He's got a girlfriend that he loves. She ends up getting pregnant. What are they going to do with the baby? Uh, And that movie without giving anything away has a moment in it. That is the most memorable theater going experience I had in 2019. Uh, There's a moment when it happens that my theater made a sound that I've never heard a theater make, make before an audience make before uh, but what I love about it is that while that story plays out uh, to its natural conclusion, the movie shifts gears and tells the, the point of view of a second character and gives you an equally compelling story. Uh, Treyard which Schultz is a fantastic filmmaker uh, and put together an amazing cast and waves has become the movie this year that I just like showing to other people. Cause I like to just pay attention to them while they watch it. Uh, the performances are great. Story was great. Totally unexpected. Uh, it it landed at number five for me.
2: It's a great movie, and I watched it because of Sean's raving review. And I, I one thing I want to mention about that film real quick is the is the changing aspect ratios. Um, yeah. as as the leading character in the first half is 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 coming to his conclusion of where he's going to end up, there's these amazing tools that he uses for aspect ratios where he kind of tightens the frame, where you start feeling the pressure on the character. And I just thought that was such a fascinating way to play with it because you almost don't recognize it. It's one of those beautiful tools where if you change aspect ratios and you don't recognize it, but you feel the tension of it, that's when the director did his job. So if he's closing in the aspect ratio and you feel like you're getting smaller and more nervous about this character, he's doing his job. Same way uh, Wes Anderson handled aspect ratio changes in Grand Budapest. That was just to indicate the decades you were in. Um, It's just a really interesting tool. I thought it was really well done.
0: He's a talented director. All right, yep. we're into our top fives now. Uh, Jake, you're at number four. Uh, my number four is Joker. Okay, very nice. Kevin. Did you comment on. on Joker
2: already, Jake? Yes, you I did. You commented yes. on it. Okay, good. All right. Yep. Yep. Uh, my, num- my number four is Us. Uh, oh. And Us ah. was, was my number one uh, for, a while. for a long time, actually, um, until my number one unseated it. Uh, it, it was, it's a film that I saw four times in theaters. I think Jordan Peele is one of the greatest filmmakers working today because he challenges his audience. The rewatchability of his films is unlike anything I've ever seen before. Get Out and Us on second, third, fourth, fifth viewings are astounding. Um, Those scripts are airtight. I don't understand how he does it because you're basically having actors give two performances in the sense of Allison Williams in Get Out or any character in us literally two performances, I guess, for us because the doppelgangers. But you're 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 directing your actors to give audiences a different experience on their second viewing. So Lupita Nyong'o not only is emotionally becoming the character of Red and the character she plays in the real world, she's also has to think because Jordan tells her to about how the audience is going to perceive her on the second viewing. Like, and that to me is deeper than anything I could ever think of. As a filmmaker, you're trying to get that first viewing right. But if you're already thinking about the second viewing while perfecting the first viewing, I just don't get it, and I don't understand, I don't know how he has the patience to write something like that. Um, I think that film is, I think that film was so divisive because Get Out was, at the end of the day, it was wrapped up, you knew what happened. Us leaves you with a lot of questions. And I think a lot of audiences didn't want to. What, what's happening with someone like Jordan Peele and filmmakers like Chris Nolan is they make you work. You work when you watch their movies. You work when you watch Dunkirk. You work when you watch Inception. You work when you watch these movies because he's challenging you. It's a different level of immersion. And I think that's what Jordan does really well. And I think Us is truly a masterpiece. That's my number four.
0: Kevin, you didn't, I don't know if you heard this breaking news, uh, but no. after he watched after he watched El Camino El Camino, oh. uh, Jordan Peele decided he wanted to make a breaking bad movie himself.
2: Oh, what's what's it called? You,
0: uh, Gus. Oh, yes!
2: <laughs> <laughs> I would watch Gus. I, I want to watch Gus. So, someone get Giancarlo Esposito on the phone now, man. That'd be amazing.
0: Lapita Nyong'o is gonna play uh, is gonna play the lead role. <laughs> Gus follow-up to <laughs> us.
2: that's good thank you sean all right that was number
0: four uh number four for me is a uh, friend of the show quentin tarantino's once Ooh. upon a time in hollywood here we go yes and i i know and believe me the fact that it's at four this means that this is a tremendous year and again i went back and revisited it and it's still amazing but I, I love the three movies above it uh, for me a little bit more. But it is, I'll never be able to say it's my favorite Tarantino because Pulp is right there. I think it might be two for me. Um, so and again, I have talked at length about how much I don't necessarily love the hyper-violent uh, Tarantino ones, Django and, and Inglorious Bastards. So the laid-back vibe of this one held me more enraptured uh, and by the time we got to the Manson uh, killings at the end, they had that comedic element that a lot of people see in Django and a lot of people see in bastards, but that went over my head. That just eluded me. Uh, I, I thought it was really, really funny the way that they paid off the, the flamethrower aspects. And I thought, <laughs> you know, pit pit with the laced cigarette and, and his interactions with the Manson family. And away we go. But just the performances are incredible. Margo's incredible. Brad's incredible. Leonardo DiCaprio gives to me the performance of the year. Um, It's Tarantino's love letter to the film industry and television in a really weird way. It's so much more about TV. And then even talking to him in our second conversation, not to name drop that, but he loves television. Like, I love that he had those viewing parties where they would like trade off old shows that people that he worked with hadn't seen yet. And he loves performances by character actors. And again, going back to revisit it, there's people in it that I just forgot who aren't getting celebrated like Pacino, like Timothy Oliphant, um, who just are great in their parts. Like when Tarantino nails casting, he nails it. And I love this script and I love how long it takes to get going because it just is happy to linger in moments that don't seem like they're important at the time, but end up becoming really important later. Uh, I I love, love, love this film, uh, and I think it's my second favorite Tarantino film uh, outside of Pulp Fiction. I think it's amazing. Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, I to, to say the least, I think it ends up on uh, Kevin and my's list as well. I'll be yeah. a little later. You know, aside from the things you talked about and, you know, the, the idea that, yes, it is absolutely this love letter to a, a period of Hollywood that I think he is uh, extremely fascinated by, the thing that really hits me in my rewatches is that it's also just a love letter to friendship between guys. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, there's something about uh, you know just having uh, a, just a buddy, just a, long, a bro, you know, that you've been there. And especially you know because so much of the of the movie is about how their careers are coming to an end. But it's also in a really sad way, kind of like you know, through no fault of anyone of their own, kind of how their friendships coming to an end too. And and that's a thing that just happens, you know, sometimes with friends. Yep. And and it it it's, it's it's not so much a like, you know, uh uh you know, be sad because it's ending, be happy because it happened kind of thing. And and it's really a love letter to what it means for just two guys to have this really really deep um friendship where they don't necessarily need to vocalize it. Uh I think the line in there is uh it's something about you know, a a buddy that's 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 more than a friend but less than a wife. Yeah. Right. And well, you know, just it, it really to me pitch, pitch perfect uh, uh, exemplifies that 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 bro friendship and and what it means when you got to just walk away from it.
0: Well, that scene that the excitement that Brad Pitt has to watch Leo in his television episode. Yeah, yes. and also
1: uh, when he says like, <laughs> "Of course we were going to do that. Like, I already have I have beer in the trunk. Like, what did you, yeah. what did you? I love that because <laughs> I used you know so is that that reminded me of us. Because yeah, like yeah. if you like if if I had something going on one night and you guys were gonna drop me off and, and I were to say like hey do you do you wanna stay for it? Both of you guys were go like, Well, I was planning on staying for it. In fact, yeah. I got <laughs> like I thought we were gonna order a pizza and I got beer yeah, the, like yeah, yeah. I love that. Like that's yep. the stuff that really gets me in my rewatches. The first time we all watched it together, I was just engrossed in this, you know, this 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 Hollywood world. But for me, yep. in, in in my consecutive rewatches, it's their friendship that just you can't have one
0: without the other. Kevin, who's I mean, your favorite filmmaker of all time. You know, yeah. Where is it for you? This
2: film, uh, I've had a very interesting experience with this movie um, <laughs> since July, to say the least. I've seen it eight times now, um, and it's become such an interesting experience watching it. I think it may be his masterpiece, um, and I say that not saying that I think it's the best movie he's ever made, I just think it may it, I think in my opinion, if you're looking at his filmography, my favorite movies of his are Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and Kill Bill and Bastards. I think Hollywood might be his masterpiece. I, I think Hollywood well,
0: Let me add one quantifier to that. The other movies that he's written, um Django and Bastards and things like that, I don't think they taught us that much about him. Him. And exactly. I think this movie is I think this movie is all about him.
2: Right, and that's kind of what I learned. So I'll briefly give my arc here because I think this is interesting. The first time I saw the film, I loved it, but I didn't love it as much as you guys did. Um, I went into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood waiting for the Tarantino movie that I was waiting for him to deliver to me, um, which is a very selfish reason or way to go into a movie. But as Pacino, like a Star Wars fan. Yeah, but as as Pacino says to DiCaprio in the movie, and Gabe pointed this out masterfully after we saw it, you build a psychology towards a, a certain way that you view a director or a certain way the director makes movies. And Jake even said this as well. He even adjusted himself halfway through the through the uh, movie. At first, he was kind of like, "What's going on? This is interesting." And then you go, "Oh, this is the movie that this is going to be." So let me just sit back and watch it. I the what whole picture, time when I want a picture. But my first that. time watching the movie, I was waiting for the Tarantino movie that I wanted to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it wasn't until, so I saw it twice in 35, and both experiences I loved, but I but I, it didn't truly emotionally hit me until I saw it in 70. Um, my 70 millimeter experience of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood will go down in my book as one of the greatest movie experiences I've ever had in my life. I was by myself. Unfortunately, I wish I was with you guys for it. Um, But I sat in that theater. I went to see it. What Theater? Had, Where were you? It was ArcLight, 70 millimeter, okay. Sunset Boulevard. Um, nice. Wasn't the Cinerama Dome, but it was. It was in one of their 70 millimeter theaters. And I I sat down in the theater, and I, I and I went to see it only because I had time to kill, and I also just wanted to experience it in 70. I was curious how the 70 print, how the blow up looked. So I I sat down. I think I had milk duds and a Diet Coke and a popcorn. I might have gotten nachos. I don't remember. And I just, like, I just sat there and I was like, I'm going to let this be what it is and let me see how I experience it without any expectations. And something magical occurred in that moment. I don't know what it is, but I just, it just slapped me across the face that this film is a masterpiece. And I say that because it's a, it's, it's a movie that doesn't have a lot happening, but yet it has so much happening emotionally um and I think it was it's these scenes that you're sitting in DiCaprio with Julia Butters masterful uh the Lancer sequence as the camera reverses its track and comes back around uh the way he handles the Sharon Tate situation at the end um Brad Pitt and DiCaprio deliver the two best performances of their career I love how messed up DiCaprio's mustache looks as we're close up on him and part of it's like hanging off of his face I mean there's just something (laughs) like special but then you know what really what what hit me and Tarantino's been known for this for years is the way he utilizes soundtrack um, there's moments in this film where we're just driving through L.A. at night and the song choices that he uses make the hair on my arms stand up. He, mm-hmm. he has the ability to make me fall in love with songs that I would have never fallen in love with before because of the scenes they're attached to. Stuck in the middle uh, with you, whatever the song from Reservoir Dogs. Um, you, you think about these moments and how those song, that song is now attached to that. So I know I gotta wrap up, but I, I just wanna say that after repeat viewings on this, I, I, I'm just astounded by the master craft of this movie. I feel like I know Quentin Moore as Sean said. Um, this to me is the movie that I just didn't know he was gonna make, but that I'm so happy that I revisited as many times as I did because it's truly become one of my favorite movies of his career uh, and I'm'm just I'm, just I'm just in love with it and I want to say one more thing you mentioned the FBI sequence um, Do yourself a favor watch the special features on the Blu-ray and this will give you an idea of why I love this movie so much. He cares about every frame, every second of that movie he cares about so much so that I believe they spent three days building and shooting a one second scene where the Taco Bell lights come (laughs) on. I mean, Mm -hmm. that is the level of detail. The FBI truck that you're watching DiCaprio mess around in in the FBI episode when they're commenting on it at the house is the real FBI truck from that episode. They found it. Um, The car that they drive up in to Sharon Tate's house before they go into uh, Cahill's house, they went and found the real car the murderers used, took a ton of photos of it, and then redesigned a car to look exactly like it. And you don't need to do stuff like that, but Tarantino cares so much about immersion and and production scale that... It just feels like a filmmaker who genuinely cares about your experience with it. And it's just incredible. I love it. Well, let's, wh-
0: let's quote Quentin uh talking to John Dykstra and then we'll move on. Oh yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna notice it, John.
2: I'm gonna notice it, John. There and you go. truthfully,
0: and truthfully, you're gonna notice it too. <laughs> uh, that's if a great you haven't listened film. to our two yeah, if you haven't listened to our two interviews with Quentin Tarantino, please go back and uh and download them immediately on the podcast. All right. Top three, baby. Top three. We're rolling Have you given your, Did you give your four? Uh, my four is once. That's what kicked us off. Yeah. Oh, my four is once upon time in Hollywood. So we're all in our top three. threes, starting with Jake. My number three is 1917. Here we go. Nice. Which we talked about. Yep. Kevin's number three.
2: Yeah. And and uh, my number three is actually, and, and th- I want to preface this because I know I'm probably going to get... Um, negative comments for this because it's oh. a, it's a it's a film that I I guess I kind of uh, had something to do with that part with Ben Affleck but oh. I I Jane reboot is my number 3 of the year and here I, I want to say this because I want to set this up because it, it, yes you, you could you could look at the year dude it's a
1: great at, movie like you don't you right. don't have to defend yourself it's no a great I know movie.
2: but by, but the reason I'm defending myself is because it could come across strange that I'm putting a film in my top ten that I was kind of connected to with a story with Ben Affleck but that's a that's a whole other thing I want to set that aside. Um, I've been a Kevin Smith fan since I, since 1997 I believe um, and it's because of this band called Silverchair that I loved listening to in the 90s and um, when they released the soundtrack for Mallrats I found um, that Silverchair was going to be on it and I was like what's Mallrats and then I found Mallrats and fell in love with Kevin Smith and then from then on I've been obsessed with his movies. He's been—he's a top five filmmaker for me. He—he he, much like Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez were filmmakers that I grew up with. Those movies were part of my childhood, teenage years, high school, and college. I love Clerks. I love Dogma. I love Chasing Amy. I love Mallrats. I love Jane Bob Strike Back. I love Clerks too. I cried in Clerks too when Jeff and Brian are in the the prison cell. Going over their friendship and I, th- the fact that I cried in a Kevin Smith movie is insane to me. So going to reboot, which I feel like is truly kind of his masterpiece, right? In the sense of it's as people have said, it's his end game. It's a sequel to all of his movies and the emotional. You know how hard it is to balance an R-rated raunchy comedy with fart jokes and whatever, whatever you want to say, or, or weed jokes, and then. To actually make you cry and make you feel, there's a scene where Jason Muse has with Harley Quinn, his daughter in the film, that is devastating. Like, like, like the, the, there's a great arc that Jason Mewes has in that film, and then the Affleck scene is truly amazing. And I understand um, I'm tied to that in a, in a very small way because of an interview that I did. No, no, but, stop downplaying but it. But yeah, my, you but are. Yeah. But my, but I do want to say because I understand how this come across. I just have been a fan of his since the early nineties. I love his movies and I loved reboot as a Kevin Smith fan. It just delivered on every cylinder and level that I wanted. And if you're a fan of his movies, I can't imagine you not loving it. That's my number three of the year. I
0: love, love. I'm going to say this too. I'd written Kevin Smith off as a filmmaker uh, because of this cop out, which he can make all the excuses that he wants to in the world terrible it's a terrible movie it's right? bad it's, it's i think bad. i
1: think he would say it's a bad movie he yes. does say it's bad. um in, in the movie i liked red state
0: bad. i liked red state me too but I, I didn't i don't like tusk i don't like yoga hosers and i yoga hosers to me is is such a clumsy movie that I, I honestly said i don't think i really need to see another kevin smith movie uh i was very content with him to keep doing podcasts and and his own he's the greatest Storyteller, I'll yeah. listen to Kevin talk for hours upon hours upon hours, and he'll and he'll talk for hours upon hours. I was stunned at how good Reboot is. Reboot, reboot is was amazing, really, and, great. And Sean it's was great. texting
2: me throughout it. It is genuinely amazing. Like the, the the Affleck scene, the when he says our kids are our reboot. What a profound, oh, oh. what a profound line. What a line. Who's? Yeah. I mean, what? A, i never thought of it that way. It's so true though. And you think about the movie. Joking about being a reboot, and then I love that Kevin actually gives us an explanation between a reboot and a remake. Like I just love those scenes. There's just it's just so well crafted and so it's really well done. Jason Lee, God, he's so great. So that's my number three. One of of my.
0: And I want to point out, yes, I did text Kevin throughout the entire movie. But what (laughs) happened was I went to one of the fan showings that they did on that one night where they did like 7 o'clock and then a 9.30 screening. And I I drove myself to the 9.30 after going to a press screening of something else I forget. And I was like, well, I'm out. I'm just going to go see this. And I was the only one in the theater. (laughs) I feel bad about Kevin uh, because, you know, here he's doing this for the fans. And I was in a theater by myself. But like five or ten minutes into it when the movie was actually started to be pretty good, I texted Kevin and I was like, this is actually good. And yeah. then Kevin responded, and then we were both on at the same time. And I just kept texting him through the whole, whole movie. It was, it was letting him know what happy. scenes I was at. And I knew that he was so excited because he got to see that early cut a bit at Kevin's house. And so uh it was it was great. He was finally able to talk about it with people. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's it's really, really good. Okay. Uh where are we? That's all of no, our three. threes. No, my three is marriage story. My three okay. is marriage story. Yeah. Uh just a meal of a movie that I I adore. So Top two, Jakey, two. My number two is The Irishman. Oh, yes. Nice. Uh, Kevin, two.
2: My number two is Uncut Gems. Uh, Wow, that went really high. Up top, up top. Masterpiece, yep.
0: Uncut Gems. And my number two is Avengers Endgame, which brings us to. (laughs) Movies we can't talk about.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we've already discussed them all.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we pretty much talked about them. So, Jake, number one for you
2: Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Kevin. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. No
0: question. And mine not is, even close. Mine is, uh, mine is Irishman. Um, a, a movie that I, I cannot believe Scorsese was able to make at his late age. So uh, a lot of repeats. We, we, we had a lot of films that stood out. Let's see what's different for all of us. Jakey Ad Astra, Midsomar, Beautiful Day. Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars. Kevin's Reboot and Us. Uh, Knives Out and Dolomite. My Differences was Waves. Rocket Man and Little Women. Yeah. So probably, I mean,
1: an interesting amount of different, and just enough to make this interesting.
2: Yeah. I agree. Um, Gabe actually said in our text chain earlier, right, and I think it's a good idea, um, I think we should just repeat our 10 through 1 real fast. Um, each good idea. Us. All right. Jay, um, go ahead. Yeah, because it is uh, so much do more my whole on. list?
1: Just yeah. 10, 10 to 1. through 1. My number 10 was Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. My number 9 was Marriage Story. My number 8 was Uncut Gems. My number 7 was A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. My number 6 was Midsummer. My number five was Ad Astra. My number four was Joker. Number three was 1917. Number two was The Irishman. And number one was Once Upon
0: a Time in Hollywood. Ooh, good films. Kevin. My number
2: 10 was Dolomite is My Name. My number nine was Knives Out. My number eight was Marriage Story. My number seven was The Irishman. My number six was Gemini Man. I'm just kidding. Number six was Joker. Yeah. Uh, number, <laughs> number five was Endgame. Number four was Us. Number three was Reboot. Uh Jay and Silent Bob Reboot. Uh, number two is Uncut Gems, and then number one, uh, my, it's actually not even close. Like the difference between my number one and number two is like going from LA to DC. Like it's 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 that much of a jump. Um, and my I love goodness. Uncut Gems, but I think Hollywood is by far one of the greatest movies I've I've, I've ever seen. And, and, and right. it took me eight times to get to that point, but I love it.
0: My ten is Little Women. Nine is Uncut Gems. Eight is Rocket Man. Seven is 1917. Six is Joker. Five is Waves. And then here's where the separation starts for me. These ones, four through one, are the four movies that I gave five stars to, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Marriage Story at three. Avengers Endgame at two. And The Irishman at one. Those are the real blend top ten films of the year 2019. Uh, We are going to be as we mentioned, uh, doing our best of the decade at the Washington, D.C. meetup on January 4th. Uh, we want you guys to be able to uh, share your top tens with us also via social media. Uh, would Let us know what you guys have put together. Send them to us on email, uh, realblend at cinemablend.com. This week in movies, Gabe says The Grudge is opened, but since we're recording this so far in advance, no one has seen The Grudge. And no blend game this week, uh, because as I mentioned, at the... Uh, DC meetup. We're going to play uh 2010s blend, but that means that you guys listening to this right now are able to participate on social media using the hashtag 2010s blend. You can also send us your picks via email at that real at And again, if you're coming to the DC meetup on January 4th at the AMC Georgetown in 14, uh, AMC Georgetown, 14, you have to have your 2010s blend pick ready because there's a very good chance. We're going to call on you in the audience and you're going to come up and be part of the show. Uh, and share your pick for 2010's Blend and why why you're picking that movie. We do have a review, um, yes, that we can read this week. From someone who uh, didn't leave their name, but they left a subject line that says, kind of annoying, but still gave us four stars out of five. Hey, I, lo- I love the deep dive into movies. Oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. They did give their name, but it's a whole lot of letters just, just smashed together. It doesn't actually read anything. Uh, but they say, I love the deep dive into movies. But as a listener, hearing three or four people constantly talk over each other and interrupt is really annoying. That's it. That's the whole review. Dude, that, was that was Gabe.
1: He's trying <laughs> that to was reinforce Gabe. a point.
0: Well, that person doesn't listen to the show because they said three or four people and Gabe never talks. So they know that, uh, that, that that's false. But thank you, anyway, for your review. Name I cannot pronounce. Uh, Please keep sending us reviews to the show, obviously. We will uh, read them at the end of each show. I hope you guys liked this episode. Uh, This was a lot of fun to be able to put our lists together. Uh, You probably could have guessed a number of them based on the things that we've talked about over the years on the show. Uh, Hopefully... We will see a number of you in D.C. Uh, this coming weekend when you're listening to it. In the meantime, follow the rest of us on social media at Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy TV, at Sean underscore O'Connell and at the Real Blend account. Also, head over to the Facebook page. We have a Facebook community page where you guys can uh, start your own film discussions, weigh in on the hot topics of the day. Probably something Star Wars Rise of Skywalker related at this point. And uh, we'll be back with a new episode. Number 100. Holy cow. Wow. Boys. Our next episode is going to be number 100 uh, recording in front of an audience. And so the pretty much only way to end this one now, without further ado, is Dunkirk. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines.